Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown show. A show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Finding a spiritual home where you feel affirmed and truly accepted just as you are is so important to many in the LGBTQ plus community and communities of color. Many have found that home as members of Unitarian Universalist congregations. This is true for the Metro Atlanta area as well. In the larger metropolitan area, there are about six or seven Unitarian Universalist congregations, but they're all in predominantly white areas of town. In 2018, Our guest, Reverend Duncan E. Teague, with others committed to moving forward with Black Lives of Unitarian Universalism and building communities centered in Black areas and communities of color, founded the Abundant Love Congregation, a new Unitarian Universalist congregation in the West End neighborhood of Atlanta. Before accepting his calling to ministry, Reverend Teague had an established career in HIV AIDS education, advocacy, and research coordination. He began at AIDS Atlanta within the first five years of the epidemic. In the 2017 legislative session of the state of Georgia House of Representatives, Teague was recognized for his many years of HIV-AIDS work. Reverend Teague graduated from Candler School of Theology in 2011 and was ordained by the Unitarian Universalist Congregation of Atlanta and credentialed by the larger UU Association in 2014. Abundant Love's beliefs are diverse and inclusive embracing teachings from Eastern and Western religions and philosophies. It is committed to continuing the work of healing communities and is working with Emory's Rollins School of Public Health and the School of Nursing to assist with research to inform faith-based HIV AIDS prevention programs from the perspective of Black, gay, and bisexual men. Reverend Teague, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. First of all, how are you and your husband doing these challenging times? Sure. Oh, um, (laughs) we are well, and my husband is David, 
and mm-hmm. we've been together um, going on 26 plus years. Mm-hmm. And what you want to know about David, especially in the times we're in now, is that he is a retired CDC researcher. Um, he didn't do communicable disease, but but of course he had to study some of that, and um, and he's retired now, and mm-hmm. so he's been looking up the information and um, and under the circumstances, of course, I need to follow his lead. So we've been quarantined, and I'm not an introvert. <laughs> <laughs> I'm just going to say that. I'm not an introvert, but I am a loving and caring person. And as much as I would love to be out at the parties, at the clubs, at wherever we gather and have fun, movies, plays, uh, concerts, you know, that was the stuff in between for me. Mm-hmm. Um, between And sometimes the stuff of my work, uh, depending upon what I was doing. Um, and so I don't like staying in either, but I love the people around me, and I love my husband, and I don't want to bring COVID-19 into this house. Mm-hmm. And I don't want to give it to anybody if, in fact, I somehow got infected. Mm-hmm. Um, and this sounds very familiar, doesn't it? Yep. <laughs> For some yep. of us. Mm-hmm. Um, and the level of sacrifice sounds familiar. And, and, and I hate to say that, but, but the buffoonery on the federal leadership level by certain parts of our government uh, seem familiar also, but in a very much more um, vicious way. Mm-hmm. But David and I are good. Uh, we both mostly just kept it to um, the um, the grocery store, the pharmacy. Um, it took us two months to go figure out when the dry cleaners would reopen and what times he would be there. And so for the first time today, he had to run and get our dry cleaning. Um, mm. And there wasn't that much there, and, and because of the – the change in our lives, there isn't much to put in there. Um, and I know how to iron. Uh, so, so that's what's going on. Um, we're fine. And mm-hmm. there are older friends of mine and of David's, in particular two older women, one who's adopted me and I certainly have adopted her, in sort of a mother-son relationship, and she has many chosen sons because years ago she lost her son to HIV. And she's a very go-getter 81-year-old. And this is horrible on her Uh Uh because, you know, she's in the senior living facility in a nice apartment, but that's that's not enough for her world. And David has a chosen mom too. And this is really horrible. So I want to encourage people, please don't forget about our seniors who Mm -hmm. have downsized their lives so that they could have the care they need and to be in safe environments. Um, Please don't forget about them during this time because it was hard on us. Um, It's, 
unimaginable to have your life shrink down and then to have this happen. Um, they didn't go into those facilities so that they could become medical jail. Um, yeah. yeah. So I mean, if that, you that have is... somebody in your life like that, write them, call them, check on them, um, go wave at them. We uh-huh. took mom, my play mom some dinner the other night because we know what she likes. Um, I forgot the, the uh, pink wine, but that's another story. Well, you know, you two have been together like 26 years. I, uh, but it's like 20, and that's just 26 years, but you know, you're able to come and go and do like this. But here you are in quarantine. Was that, were there challenges to that? Oh, baby. (laughs) Oh, my goodness. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Now, of course, we have our rhythm, right? Mm-hmm. And, and and you don't stay with somebody this long and not know something about how they function. Um, but I have always, and I and I think I've gotten it down pretty well that I've been since junior high school. So I'm, and when I say I'm extroverted, I don't mean that I'm a little extroverted. I mean that I think the mailman wants to know me. Uh-huh, uh-huh. And, and part of the way I um, feel that need to get to know people, to interact with people, was I had my routes, my things that I did for the church and for myself, all of the community. So I would get in the car and just run down to the secondhand store to get a birthday gift or something. Um, or to the little shops that are about four or five blocks from us. Sometimes we walk. But, um, and we had places we would go after church on Sunday for brunch, and we go there so often or on Saturday morning for brunch that they know us after <laughs> this long of being together. And if uh-huh. one of us shows up, they ask about the other one. And those people, for me, as an extrovert, are important to me. Um, and to just cut them off like this, not only economically, but emotionally. Like there's a waitress who is, and, and another server in town who started waiting on us when he was in his um, teens. Well, you add 26 to that, he ain't in his teens no more. Mm-hmm. And we've watched him grow up and moved from one popular restaurant to another and ran into him at different functions and different... He's a part of our existence. And he's grown up bringing us food. This is really challenging how we cooperate in the world. And I'm preaching Sunday on having time to think about it. Mm-hmm. Because for some of us, we have never had this kind of thing, this kind of um, pause in the schedule, in the commute, in the getting kids for ready for school, picked up for school, taken to an activity, whatever. All of that has been shut down. So we've had a lot of times to just think about what is important and what do you really miss? 
And what part do you play in making that world good or nice or comfortable? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, yeah, so I'm, I'm, I'm thinking about all this kind of stuff and, and deep in it. But me and David are cooperating pretty well. I know sometimes I look like I'm headed toward the door to go to the car and I get a look and I have to think about it. Do I really want to make this trip? Because mm-hmm. mm-hmm. uh, I used I mean, to I... make two or three trips. Mm-hmm. <laughs> well, I know what you mean because, you know, although I, I, I live by myself, and when it first started, I had a neighbor down the hall, and we would stand at either down end of the hall and talk to each other. Then uh, her daughter got sick, so and suddenly I didn't see her. And after a certain point, I decided, you know, I'm just going to go for a walk. And I, too, am one of those people. I think everybody, I want to know about them. They want to know about me. And I know that I find myself, mask on, hollering across, hey, good morning, how are you? And, so, you, know, and you have some of these people sort of look at you like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, but but it but it, it's just like like you said what things matter you know that ability to to be able to like you said go get in the car and go someplace and and talk to whoever's behind the counter or whatever you know that that part it's just like very very odd you know you yeah and and for and for some of us mm-hmm. uh, that person behind the counter. We just happened to walk in when they when their mother got sick mm-hmm. four months ago, mm-hmm. and so we know the story. We're not just a customer, mm-hmm. and they know when we got sick and when we went to treatment and when we got better and when we came back and bought a gift because we needed to buy a gift for such and such, and and those kind of things become a relationship. Um, yeah, so this mm-hmm. is this has been a lot, a lot, mm-hmm. and and I don't, um, I'm trying to not have judgments about people who will not cooperate with masks. I know what the national leadership is saying, but I'm asking that you really uh, question that because if in fact I can't go to the governor's mansion, why is mm-hmm. the government governor reopening everybody else's house? Mhm. Mhm. Really, yeah. not everybody else's house, but a particular set of houses. Mhm. Mhm. And why is the why is somebody who calls himself the president um, taking a medication that is not approved? And the few studies we have on it says that this is not helpful. Yeah. What's that I mean, about? Mhm. I mean, really, and and you know what exactly? What is it about? And I have. I work with a group here called Lupus Detroit. Many of these people take that drug and take other, you know, and they are saying that how they have found that their supply isn't as ready yes. as it is, and they know that people are doing it. Yes. And, you know, they know what it works for them, and they also know the risk. But, you know, and here he's saying, well, he says so many things. It's just like like crazy. You know, yeah, we're, I mean, we're not going to waste my whole interview on him. But. No, no, no. I mean, it's just crazy. But, um, you know, you went from one field of work to becoming a member of the clergy. You do all this. How did you make that switch? How did you, do you feel that, you know, like you have been involved in 
HIV work and you've done all this stuff. How how do you see those two fitting together? Um, I'm going to own a conversation that I had with Phyllis Sargent. And when we moved into 4105 South Bentman, Kansas City, when I was, I guess I was three years old or approaching three years old. I don't, I don't, I certainly wasn't older than that because I don't remember our other house. Uh-huh. The next door neighbors were the sergeants, and so I grew up with Philip and David Sargent next door, and and they were older kids than us, and so we were, we, you know, they were like family, and um, and when I got out of college, and I started doing AIDS work, and I had a degree in theater. Oh, I have a degree in theater. Um, yeah, let me own that because uh, mm-hmm. it took me a while to pay for that degree. But it, own it. Anyway, own it. <laughs> it's mine. It's paid for. Mm-hmm. Um, when I started doing AIDS work, I was a volunteering, and then I became a key volunteer, and then I became one of the first black gay outreach workers here in Atlanta in the 80s. And so I was involved in the epidemic, the AIDS epidemic for a long, HIV and AIDS epidemic for a long mm-hmm. time. And I remember Phyllis stopping me and saying, Duncan, why don't you get, get a degree in social work since that's what you want to do? And, you know, whether we want to admit it or not, social work is just ministry. Mm-hmm. It's just public ministry. Mm-hmm. And with some training. And... And I looked at her like, there's no way I'm getting a degree in social work. I mean, in, yeah, in social work or anything else like that. That was not what I want. I wanted to be a businessman. But, you know, what you are called to do from the inside, not from the outside, is, is just as profound. And so when I looked back over my life, as they say in the song, I had been doing ministry for a very long time. If you look at the work I did in HIV as a calling to try and help the community, at a point, by the way, when few people wanted to help. Mm-hmm. So that's one of the things that's different in the epidemic. When HIV and AIDS started, even the medical community didn't want to deal with this. And, and some didn't feel morally responsible to deal with it because of who it was affecting, drug users and queers. And mm-hmm. it was like, well, we don't, we don't have to be bothered with that. Um, so so the, the rush to come and help happened later in the AIDS, HIV and AIDS epidemic. Um, but the, when I... And and the truth is that I I had a calling to go into ministry as a a teenager, and I kept compromising with God about it because I also sang, and I I didn't see any out black gay ministers. And you have to put all those adjectives in there. I saw plenty of black ministers, plenty of gay black ministers, but they weren't out. Mm -hmm. But I did see out black gay gospel singers. And so I thought that I would, you know, compromise with God and I would sing. And so for a long time, my ministry was singing. And I thought that was enough. 
And um, and then I got very upset with the reaction to the early epidemic by my home church, um, by the black religious community that I'd grown up in, and I'd never seen them respond to people who were sick and dying like that. And it broke my heart. And I left the mm-hmm. church for a while. Not long, but for a while. And so then I went hunting for a church that would love and care for my friends who had HIV and AIDS like I did. And I stumbled into a renegade congregation from the Unitarian Universalist, and that's where I was. And they actually ushered me right back into ministry because if you run from something that you're supposed to do, you will run right into it. (laughs) And that's what I do it. So... In some ways, um, the accepting of being called into ministry officially, in quotation marks, was Mm -hmm. just me accepting the official part of it. And and I'm very proud of the social justice history and the work that the Unitarian Universalists did uh, for the gay community and in HIV when few religious communities were involved. My roommate was actually a UU minister in the 90s, and um, and he had a he was part of the a core of people who delivered meals to folks mm-hmm. uh, with HIV and AIDS, and it was out of the large UU congregation here in Atlanta. So when I got ready to go into ministry, I had I knew where I would be welcomed and where my kind of ministry would be welcomed. And it was there. That's a long answer to a very simple question. I'm sorry. No, it's a perfect answer. You know, the answer that you give is, is like I said, it's the one that you're going to do. You know, and I'm not surprised because, like, I, we were talking earlier, and I was telling you that my, the first Unitarian Universalist Church in Detroit has always been that place where, I mean, the Socialist Worker Party, they had things in there. I worked with a youth group, and it was a community youth group, and we found a home in the Unitarian Universalist Mm -hmm. Church. I mean, they just made that place. And it was funny that some people go, it's not a a real church. Anybody can go in there. But, you know, but it is that spirit of community and that love. I've always found that's a place where, where you can go. So. You know, when you when you decided to do this, it was did you it was did you feel good? Did you suddenly feel like, you know, okay, I tried to let's make a deal with God for forever, and now this is the deal, and I'm doing it. Um. Now, out of fairness to to some of our you you brothers and sisters and and bristers and and folks, um. I talk about my calling as as from God and also from the community and also from inside me because it was clear that I was doing ministry um, because I thought my last compromise before I went for official status and ordination and all of that, before I got into seminary, my last um, compromise was, well, I'll be a lay minister, meaning Mm. unordained, and I'll do the preaching, and I'll 
and and literally you can do almost everything um, in our movement as a lay person uh, if you show that calling and that leadership and that drive. And um, so I had gone so far into lay ministry that folks didn't know that I wasn't ordained. (laughs) And I thought that that was enough. And then God started playing hardball with me. And and this is my theology. It's not Unitarian Universalist theology necessarily, but um, my good job in HIV and AIDS research started to get a little interesting, shall we say. Uh And and at the time, I was wrestling with, do I go into seminary or not? And and don't play with God, (laughs) because you don't get into it. At least that's my theology. You will get answers, and I got very clear answers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Like, um, like, not only are you to go, but you need to go now. <laughs> I applied to seminary so late that I thought, oh, they hadn't accepted me. And, and you know, and, and you shouldn't do this. You should just go on ahead and do what you're called to do. But, but I was stubborn. And and I'm thinking, oh, they haven't accepted me because it's too late in the process, and you know, and there's no money probably. Every excuse I tried to come up with for not going to seminary got taken away from me. Even my beat up car, and it would cost more to park on campus than my car was worth. And do you know there is a free shuttle five blocks from my house? I I couldn't give any excuse. Mm-hmm. Um, my husband supported me completely. I couldn't use him as an excuse. Um, and and like you said, you feel good once you've accepted what you're supposed to do, or you found what it is that the universe is waiting on you to do. Um, that happened for me, and. And I made better grades in seminary as a graduate student than I did with crayons as a kid. Wow. And I've never been stupid. But but, uh-huh. but there was something about being there at that time in my life, ready for it and knowing what I was doing. And I really did put my head down and, and studied because, you know, at that point in life, and I'm not going to give my age away, but I'm not that young anymore, um, and this was in 2008 to 2011, um, I saw the younger people in seminary who were doing what you're supposed to do as a young person, and that's figure out who you are, are you going to be loved, who do you want to love you, who do you want to love, and all that kind of stuff. And it takes a lot of energy to figure that stuff out. And they were doing it and trying to be students, and some of them could do it because when you're young, you can do everything. Uh, but I didn't have to do all that, so I could just be a student. And I thought, wow, I remember all that. Uh-huh. And I was kind of grateful because I really mm-hmm. could just concentrate on being a good student and learning what it would mean for me to be a minister. Did you find that uh, your husband, those who, who knew that you had been, like, making these compromises and that you were doing all that, when you finally, it was like, there's no more excuses, I'm doing this and doing it, did they just sort of sit back and go like, 
Well, it's about time. The oh, they know. I, have the, I have the worst story about that. Okay, so <laughs> I'm, trying to, I'm trying to determine my calling. Uh-huh. And, and is this real or not, you know, or, or am I really supposed to be a nuclear physicist? And, <laughs> and, and so, um, and no, I wasn't ever going to go all the way back to that. But, um, but I picked one of my dearest and oldest friends. Actually, he's the treasurer of our congregation now, uh, Kenneth Clark. And Kenneth is, um, was a United Methodist for a while growing up, but he's, he, he, he's, a, I'll let Kenneth tell you what he was in church. But anyway, mm-hmm. he was, he, if you want to hear the plain truth, you ask Kenneth, and he's from New Orleans, and you know how they are. And so I, I think I was on the phone with Kenneth, and I said, Kenneth, I'm really wrestling with this. And before I could even get out the next sentence, he said, you've been preaching at me for 20 years, Duncan. Uh. And I thought, oh, okay. Mm-hmm, <laughs> if mm-hmm. the person who really hasn't been that concerned about church is going to tell you that, then maybe, maybe this is what you were supposed to do. And literally, um, doors opened. Okay, so after I graduated, after I did my internship, and I, um, and that was in uh, the Tennessee Valley Unitarian Congregation in Knoxville, Tennessee. And I went away and learned a whole bunch of stuff about what it meant to be a minister there. I arrived um, in oh, in 2011, no, 2012, four years after they had had a church shooting. Hmm. And so the church was ready to accept me and ready to move forward and also to be loved by somebody new. And uh, the minister there is still my mentor, Reverend Chris Bice. And um, when I came back, the first job I got, so it's 2014 going into 2015, well, gay marriage is the big issue. Mm Mm-hmm. And states are turning over the right to, for same-sex marriage all over the country. And states that we never imagined, Utah, Arkansas, you know, it was just crazy, Alabama. And me and David got married in Toronto in 03. No, 06. I'm sorry. We had our church wedding in 03, and we were married in Toronto in 06 because we never thought we would have a legal marriage here. Mm-hmm. Um, and when I got on the phone to the same people I had been talking to as Duncan all those years, and I leave a message and I say, well, this is Reverend Teague who's doing faith organizing for Freedom to Marry and with Georgia Equality. Do you know I got calls back? Mm-hmm from folks who would not have called me back when I was just Duncan. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, okay. So some part of me accepting my calling was to step into a position of responsibility and also an honorable position mm-hmm. so that I could do my work better. Nate. 
okay, if, the, okay. if, in fact, they are ignoring what the universe is asking of them or what that voice inside their head keeps nagging them about, then you are not doing what you're supposed to, and you know it. Mm-hmm. And there's work waiting on you that you need to do this thing to be in that position so that you can help us get where we all need to go. Mm-hmm. And age does not matter because I was not 40 when this happened. Mm-hmm. I was past 40. I was like Tina Turner. <laughs> hey, you know, but age ain't nothing but a number, you know. <laughs> nothing but a number. That's right. Okay, well, now we're going to take our break, but I want to talk about, about that, that transformation when you became Reverend T. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. back here on Collections by Michelle Brown, and I'm speaking with Reverend Duncan T. You know, you talked about how people answered the phone, and because you are now Reverend T, and you know, earlier you had talked about um, with HIV and AIDS, and I know I had talked once with Reverend Renee McCoy, who she had a church here, and she said, because for many of us, when AIDS was HIV and AIDS was at the highest point, how churches that we have been at forever yes. didn't want to come and, and, and see about your ministry or let alone, you know, have your funeral there. And same thing with marriage equality. I know that as it was going on, you know, I could go to places and I could talk about it. And I mean, I even had one minister tell me, you know, because we were talking about something and I went to Catholic school. I do a thing or two. And I was mentioning him talking about something that he had said that was in the Bible. And he looked at me and he said, well, even Satan can read the Bible. And I'm like, okay. You know? But there is something about when you accepted your calling and there's a role, that, that a stature that being Reverend T gives you that you can open doors in places where maybe before you couldn't go. Had you seen that? Had you recognized that? And did you, once you, you took on that mantle, did you recognize that it was your responsibility as part of your ministry to open those doors to help us all become more human? Yes. And, and I think that I had been doing that work before, but it's like you don't want a plumber who ain't been to plumbing school. Mm-hmm. You want a plumber who's been, been, you know, trained and who also 
has been in somebody else's basement before yours. And so the and and I had recently I had some well intended liberal tell me I should drop the reference. And I thought Why? no. Because he thought that it was elitist. And I thought, no, I'm, and and especially given that my calling got so specific that I am the founder of an emerging Unitarian Universalist congregation in the black part of Atlanta, where we have never had a congregation. And in the larger metropolitan area, we are really blessed to have about six or seven other Unitarian Universal congregations. They are all in predominantly white areas of town. So I knew I was called to do something different. And in the context of what I'm doing in our community, in the African-American community, it means something for me to be Reverend T. And, and yes, we are, we are also on television telling way too much about our dirt um, uh-huh. on these stupid reality TV shows, and there are reverends who are on the news every day for getting caught with their hands somewhere where it didn't belong, uh-huh. um, either in the bank account or some other account that we don't want to say over the radio. Um, uh-huh. But because of where I am, I have seen the respect I get especially if I'm in uniform, because I wear clergy collars sometimes um, if I think it's necessary, um, so that people know that there is a minister present. Like when I marched in the transgender march, and I'm not transgender, but I was there in a clergy collar to say that as a member of the clergy, I love the people in this community. And I, I want them to have their freedom also. I want them to be respected for who they want to be in the world. And, um, and, I, and I went to um, an abortion rights rally uh, when the state legislature was about to do some horrendous stuff to women's health issues. And I deliberately wore my collar. And I had women come up to me to take selfies and they were in tears because they had never seen a member of the clergy come to one of those rallies. Hmm. And I think in specific that time, it was not just that I was a minister, but that I was also a man minister who was Mm -hmm. there about women's bodies. So there's a a role that, that are placed that this honorable position called reverend and and I and the guy who was actually the graphic artist who was helping me with my business cards, it, we were in the midst of that when this guy challenged me to drop the reverend. And I said to my graphic artist, I said, "What do you think about that?" And he said, "No, Doctor. No, you worked long and hard for this, and there is something that this card says with reverend on it that it does not say without it." And mm-hmm. unlike my other liberal friend who thinks that it puts me above everybody, I think it puts me in service of everybody. Because mm. there are conversations that I've had when I've tried not to be reverend 
and any minister will tell you this, the really dedicated or in the ministry, is that sometimes we just want to go and have a glass of wine, right? Mm-hmm. And we're sitting at the bar, and we just want to have a glass of wine and relax, like because we are people. Okay, or a glass of grape juice, whatever you, you enjoy. Mm-hmm. Uh, my, grape <laughs> juice, my grape juice has been through some stuff. But um, so I'm sitting there, and this is back when I was on my internship, and I'm trying not to tell the young men that I'm having a really good conversation with that I am a minister, but I let it slip, and it all changed. The conversations changed. He needed to talk to a minister about his relationship with his sister, and and how he was struggling, and he needed that. And even though I was there to enjoy my wine, because I let it slip, I I couldn't just be Duncan. Hmm. Do you find that now, now I have some minister, I have some minister uh-huh. colleagues who would go, you shouldn't have let it slip. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. And you know better than to sit at the bar. You're supposed to sit at the table. <laughs> I know. I know. Do you do you find that particularly, you know, yes, that people will come to you to you in that way, but I think that there, there's something good to also know. I mean, you know, you I've heard you talk about your relationship, um, that you, yeah, you were having a glass of wine or, you know, grape juice on steroids, that you weren't sitting, that you're a regular person. And yeah. often, you, that, you know, you find that people want to put, the reverend is up, up on this pedestal. How do you stop that? I mean, if you see that someone is starting to put you someplace where you really aren't, and it's keeping them from hearing their calling, making their decisions, how do you how do you navigate that? Um, and this is true of anybody in the helping professions that people really do want you to do the work for them. A lot of people, not everybody. Because some people clearly accept their call to to do the good work that they're called to do, like teachers, um, anybody who's doing something that they know it comes from the inside, deep from within. And you can tell when people don't have the calling from within and playing. Um, I'm not going to go there. But anyway, um, uh-huh. the pedestal thing is difficult because we all want to be loved and admired. But what I'm cautious cautious of is when the, well, Reverend, could you blah, 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 and it's clearly not something I'm supposed to do. It's either something we're supposed to do or the person who's speaking is supposed to do. And so part of it is the challenge is to understand what is yours, what is mine, and what is ours. And I do, because I'm also a preacher's kid. Mm. My father was a minister. I, I saw how my father navigated some of that stuff. And I saw how respected he was in and out of his suit. Uh, and he took it very seriously. And I think I do too. Um, but I don't try 
to take on stuff that is clearly not mine. And I try to gently give it back to the person. Because folks would love to leave it all, you know, you can leave it at the foot of the cross if that's your theology, but don't leave it at my feet. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Uh, I'm not getting on the cross. That's already been done. Um, I think, and also I think that part of my calling for me, and everybody's called differently, and you're called according to what you what your gifts are. Like, like it's funny, in one of our meetings we were discussing who would welcome people to the congregation because we're young and new, and that's an important thing because we all have a story about going to a church and having the welcome not go so well, and we didn't go back. Mm-hmm. Um, so we were talking, and one of our members is excellent. I'm not going to name him. He's absolutely phenomenal at anything that has to do with fundraising, with money, with property, with um, building the community, with um, taking care of folks in, in, in a particular way. Like he's, he's taking care of the meals that are, because, um, you know, if you have a big anniversary, we're a black church, even though we're Unitarian Universal, we have to have food. And he takes care of them. Mm-hmm. And he's excellent at it. And I implied at one meeting that he should be doing the welcome. And boy, my team said no. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. that's not his gift. That's, that's not where he, will, he serves us best. Mm-hmm. And there's another person for whom this comes as second nature to her. And she not only welcomes, she almost gives a mini sermon with the welcome. And so <laughs> if, if folks can't stand what I said, I know they've been ministered to with just her welcome. Mm-hmm. How did you and come that's, up? How? That's part of the reason I named my church Abundant Love. Okay, okay, come in. First of all, how was the decision made? And or why to have a Unitarian Universalist church in an African American community, and why abundant love? Okay, uh, we were before we were formed. Oh God, I sound biblical. Before we were formed, <laughs> when we were just a group of people talking to Crazy Duncan about this. You, of course, have got to come up with a name for the company, right, just mm-hmm. for official purposes. And you've got to, like, have – and it is a business. It is a church, but it's also a business. You've got to have a name. You've got to have um, something that works. And I – we were bouncing stuff around, and, and we said um, – not only did we come on the notion that this congregation was about abundance and about abundant love, not abundant money, (laughs) Uh Uh, but abundant love. I mean, we would love abundant money, too. Don't get me wrong. Uh, (laughs) I better correct that before I get a call from the treasurer. Uh Um, We're not going to dismiss 
anything that's abundant is good and falls in our mission. Um, but one of the people in the room said, oh, and the way we should spell love should be L-U-U-V. And I was like, whoa. Yeah, because the Unitarian Universalist love putting the UUs uh-huh. together and using them in all sorts of ways because it takes uh-huh. so much energy to say Unitarian Universalist. So our nickname uh-huh. is Abundant Love, and it's L-U-U-V. Okay, uh-huh. so that's how we get our Abundant Love. Um, the call to come to the black part of Atlanta and do this uh, was, as far as I'm concerned, a call that came from the map, from my common sense brain, and from something bigger than all of us. In the inner city of Atlanta, we only had um, one one official congregation, and then the first existentialist, which was which is associated with us, but they're very much their own thing. And then the next congregation is at like 12 o'clock on the perimeter which surrounds Atlanta, 285, mm-hmm. that dreaded highway. Uh, and they're just they're just inside 285 at 12 o'clock. Yeah. And so that leaves the whole rest of Atlanta open with no congregation serving them. And if I-20 is a line through the middle of Atlanta, Uh none of our congregations are south of that line, Uh except for abundant love. And the next congregation south is Macon. And and, And our and some change from it, from downtown Atlanta, and the next congregation south in Georgia is Columbus, two hours south of downtown Atlanta. But if you go north of the line, you have five or six churches to choose from. Mm-hmm. So something said, well, well, that's a whole area that's not being served by our movement and we're very concerned about racial justice and about being mm-hmm. there for all people. And so why don't we go to where all people are? And I literally had that as a second thought, as this little tiny idea in my head. And I thought, oh, well, that'll be good for whoever does that. <laughs> when, I, when I was in seminary. Mm-hmm. And you have to be careful about having those kind of thoughts because, the reason why that thought is in your head is because that's your job. And mm-hmm. I had people tell me, I I wouldn't think of us doing this. I wouldn't have thought of this myself. But if anybody can do it, you can do it. And I'm not the first um, UU congregation to have tried to start with an African-American cultural context, but they weren't in the black community. And they ran into some other problems too, I think with timing more than anything else. I, I think that the black community is more than ready for liberal religious 
congregation and that we're also ready now to have a larger community served by somebody who is out and gay. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. The other piece of it is that my own life experience as an adult, um, I have been fortunate to travel, but I have not lived anywhere for a significant amount of time except Atlanta, Georgia, in my adult life. I left Kansas City in August of 84, and I've been here ever since. And so that's a whole lot of experience about who is in Atlanta and what's here and what goes on. And I have even done work in the community that we're um, raising the congregation, so I know something about that community. And I'm learning more and more every day about our communities in Atlanta and its communities. But we're proudly in the West End. And we also did the research. We did our own research and we paid somebody to look at what it would mean for us to go further south than the West End, um, Mm -hmm. in other parts of Atlanta, and the West End came up over and over and over again. And you don't ignore that kind of thing. My calling was so specific, I knew I was supposed to go south of I-20. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, we are two blocks south of I-20. No, we're not even two blocks. We're a block and a half south of I-20. We can hear I-20 when we're in worship. <laughs> but we're what south the, of it. What was the reaction to the community around you when you were, when they realized, you know, once you got established there, what was their reaction to the community around the church? Um. You have to put that in current tense because we're certainly not as established as most congregations in the area. Mm -hmm. Um, Mostly, we have been welcomed, mostly. Mm -hmm. There have been folks who have wondered, what are we doing? (laughs) Mm -hmm. Uh, and, and, And as far as I know, they have been polite, and that means that we have not uh, rattled anybody's cage yet or we haven't threatened anybody yet because we're small mm-hmm. but um, but we have done work and people people know more about us than they think um, like and, and I assume that people didn't know anything about Unitarian Universalism but I'm very surprised over and over again about the folks who do know about us And also, um, in some ways, uh, it is different, Uh, but Dr. Barbara King's Hillside Center of Truth, which is going on now, I think they're celebrating 40-some years or almost 50 years of ministry in southwest Atlanta. They are definitely a liberal religious tradition. They're uh, headed by a woman minister at a time when no women were in pulpits and ministers actually preached against her, and now Mm -hmm. she is one of the most well-regarded black ministers in America. So so part of what I'm doing is looking to the the proud, wonderful examples of people like Dr. Barbara, who who have evolved over the years. Um, 
several of her prominent ministers are member of members of the gay and lesbian community. You know, as we Oh, and by know, the way, I need to say this too. That since we have what? gone online because of COVID, mm-hmm. our attendance has doubled. Who mm-hmm. mm-hmm. I mean, are you finding uh, were all, some of these the people who are attending these churches, the north? Are you finding that some of them are from that area and welcome having some place a little closer to go to? Uh, not, not a lot. And 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 I'm not out to steal members from our other mm-hmm. congregation. <laughs> Let me mm-hmm. take that out. That is not the point of abundant love. Um, and some of those folks, you know, especially if they're people of color, they're in leadership in our other congregations. Um, so I welcome their participation, and they have been supportive. Uh, the, the way we have survived is by the love and care of our other congregations, and many of whom have sent big checks to make sure mm-hmm. that Abundant Love is doing what we do, and we are so grateful. Mm-hmm. But I'm also proud of what Abundant Love has been able to do um, on our own. Um, we chose, in the middle of this epidemic, not even able to go into where we typically worship in person because uh, they're closed. It's a museum. Mm-hmm. And for the, for the safety of everybody concerned, they're closed. Um, we chose to help um, the Carrie Steel Pits Home, which is an, um, a home for foster children who have aged out and are mm-hmm. in transition into adulthood. And we, we first said, well, you know, we'll each give what we can. And then I said, no, we can do better than that. And um, it takes about $250 to feed the kids who have come back from colleges that are shut down and from jobs that are shut down. And so they came back home to this home mm-hmm. uh, and they didn't come back with money and they got to eat, you know? Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that wasn't in the budget because their program is to help them get off into their adult lives. Well, so they asked for help and, and we said yes. And the goal was originally um, $2,500 to feed them for 10 days because she can feed them for $250 a day, the executive director. And I want you to know that I got a phone call from some folks who were very happy about what they were able to do with their stimulus package, and it's a couple who didn't have to give up their job. And so they're they're sharing it, right? Mm-hmm. So they gave us 1500 and I want you to know we raised more than 1500 to match it. Wow. And so instead of twenty five hundred, we're giving her a check for more than three thousand dollars that we raised in about three weeks in the midst of this epidemic. Mm-hmm. I'm so proud of our congregation for living out our mission and doing what we're doing, even though we're all coping with all of this craziness and cultural change in the midst of this um, epidemic. Well, 
since you opened the door, we're going to take a break. Then I want to talk about this epidemic. And, I mean, that is a, that's a wonderful place to break because it shows, you know, there are, we're not looking for a new normal. We're sowing the seeds of our new normal. So mm-hmm. uh, we'll be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. And we're back here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Um, you know, um, that, was not, that, was, that was powerful, what you talked about. And, you know, a lot of places, like I said, to look at what can we continue to do in these challenging times. Like you said, you know, well, you can't go in that place. It doesn't mean, okay, well, church is done, you know. I mean, and that, uh, well, we'll just have a virtual service every Sunday and call it a day, that you're looking at what's happening in there and being of service to that community. But I will also say that there, for some people, like I know I've heard from people who are like, you know, well, we need to be able to go into church because we have to be able to have that fellowship. But then there are people, many churches, yours included, that are doing these virtual services how do you, I mean, first of all, what are you hearing from people who, many who are shut in where Sunday, that's when they get out, they see people. This is where they, they have a sense of fellowship. That might be like you said, that they like well, you and your husband. You stopped and you had brunch and you did all that. But now, you know, they're stuck in the house. And, yeah, you can do this uh, virtual uh, service. How, what are you hearing from them? Is, is that enough? Does that really help? Because I've had people who, have traditional churches who say, well, you know, a virtual service, it just isn't going to help people like being able to come to church. What's your thought well, on that? Well, I'm, I'm going to try to be as pastoral as I can because that comment comes out of a notion that, well, this um, being quarantined, this coping with this new epidemic is going to be over at what point, right? Mm-hmm. And and that's that's where that mindset comes from because if in fact you really accept that we now have a new virus that that circled the globe in a few months, it was so contagious. So without having any virology or um, advanced medical degrees or uh, extensive training in public health, you saw a virus go around the world. 
So some part of this virus is real. Mm-hmm. So, so, so I think it's for our mental and physical health that we have to come to terms with that, and, and that's a lot. But if, in fact, you're in New York and you have lost loved ones that you couldn't even go to the funeral for, you understand that it's real. Now, out in the hinterland, it's just now starting to happen. But, but helping our folks come to terms with the fact that this is real is, I think, pastoral. Mm-hmm. Every aspect of it real? No. But, but that it is a virus that can kill vulnerable parts of our population. Yes, that part is real. And so what are we willing to do as people of faith to be loving and caring and generous under those circumstances? Because whatever we did before has to be reviewed, changed, altered, and also like, like our grandparents said, watch what folks do. Don't, not just what they say. Mm-hmm. So if the person who is in the highest leadership position claims he doesn't have to wear a mask, but he's willing to take an experimental drug according to what he's saying, I don't, I don't know that he's taking it or not. Mm-hmm. But he sure is testing everybody in his circle, and everybody in his circle is wearing a mask. That's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I think we need to be watching what people are doing more than what they're saying. That when close people to the head, um, the person I trust the most with this kind of information is Dr. Fauci. Mm-hmm. When the threat of the illness got close to them because so-and-so tested positive and -and so-and-so tested positive and you were in meetings with them and you did this, they stayed at home. Mm -hmm. So some part of our um, spiritual fortitude is about being willing to give up something now for what will be better for the community later. Mm-hmm. Um, in the midst of this, I lost my aunt, my one of my favorite aunts, the one who could make the peach cobbler. Oh. Mm-hmm. That aunt. Huh? Mm-hmm. See, for, mm-hmm. for a certain group of people, they just went, oh, yeah, that aunt. <laughs> <laughs> no, really, I really. It's like when you said, I could make a peach cobbler. Everybody had, has that aunt. You go like, oh, you know. Yeah, we lost her. She was 96. Mm -hmm. And from her line alone, this is just her descendant. Mm -hmm. From her um, children from three marriages and what have you, and grandchildren, great-grandchildren, great-great-grandchildren. There would have been over a hundred and some people at her memorial service in the family section. Mm -hmm. And there were ten people there. And, it, and we had to watch it online. Some folks who called her mama 
could not go to that service. They had to watch it online. That's a big sacrifice. But it's what we do because we love each other, not because we're so afraid, but we love each other enough to do that. You know, I mean, and that, and that, that's a hole in your heart. It's a hole in your heart, and in some ways it's that hole that will be there in the community whenever we reach some point where we're able to do things. But, you know, that one memory, you know, of her and then only 10 people being there, how do you talk to people about, you know, I mean, sometimes that hole in the heart can be, like, so huge, not being able to say that. And especially when we know that some of these people, you can't even go see them in the hospital where you couldn't have held their hand that one last time. No. How do we heal that? Um, well, and the hospitals are starting to make some compromises about who can come in to be with somebody who's dying. I, I've heard that they're changing some of that because mm-hmm. um, some of that is is beyond reasonable. Mm-hmm. Um, but if, in fact, we have a ministry to people, then we have to minister to the grief even if it's grief that comes out of an epidemic that we don't understand. And so that hole in your heart, that's where ministry has to be. And like I said earlier, um, my my play mom, who was on the go and still doing HIV and AIDS work within the um, AME church, the last thing I want for her is to be stuck in her apartment. Mm -hmm. But I don't want her to get COVID. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And I want to play with that. Mm -hmm. And, And here's the other piece, is that for some of us of a certain age, we have lived to see stuff that was crazy become manageable. And it didn't become manageable overnight. And so we can be more hopeful and more patient than we're claiming. Everything is not microwavable timeline. Mm-hmm. And if, in fact, they are talking about possibly vaccines that will be out and available or medicines that will be out and available as early as 2021, that is lightning fast compared to what Mm -hmm. used to happen. You know, you mentioned Dr. Fauci, and you also have, you, you saw HIV and AIDS. What lessons from that do you see that we need to be thinking about as we look at a COVID-19 response? Um, I know of a child who is, um, his father is actually a colleague of mine, um, an alumni friend and a a friend um, who has survived the virus, had to go into the hospital in Texas. And his little boy tested positive for COVID. He's not shown any symptoms. 
okay, so when we start talking about this and making plans about this, some of the folks who have survived this and who have lived through it, they need to be at the center of how we're planning and what we're going to do with this. And we want to be there on the front lines to make sure that the fact that this child now is COVID positive, how about that? Mm -hmm. What does that mean? Because we know what we did when folks were HIV positive, and we don't have to make those same mistakes. Mm -hmm. But be clear that part of the reason why we can talk about the epidemic and how it's affecting the immune system and what have you, all of that research is the result of HIV and AIDS. There are things that we didn't know about the human immune system in 1980 that now is just common and test to test for. I am certain that it's based in the same science that created the test that we finally got. Mm-hmm. And it wasn't in the first year. Mm-mm. And we finally got to see if you had been exposed to the HIV and AIDS virus. Well, we can only uh, for those of us who did work in that, mm-hmm. some folks who are long gone but helped in that work, we can be mm-hmm. proud of that work mm-hmm. because it is helping save lives today. Mm-hmm. All right, really. I mean, no. you know, and when you when you stop and you see people who. I mean, I know a couple who, I mean, I mean, they've been, they got married. They were both HIV positive when they got married, have had several bouts. They've been married over 30 years now, you know, yes. and, and, and they're undetectable, you know, because yes. of, of how, where we've come. But they both have stories of being shunned and treated horribly when they were diagnosed. So, I mean, mm-hmm. you know, there is hope in the future. Well, we're almost at the end of our time here, and I'm going to let you and and all of your many real and wonderful hats give a message to people who are feeling the stress, feeling the challenges of this time. What what do you have? What do you have for us, Reverend Teague? Um. One is that the people who you love and care for, um, we now have the time to send an email, a card, a letter, um, something that just says, I love you and I can't come over, I can't go to the movies, but I've been thinking about you. And when can we talk? Mm. When can we video chat? because we have the technology and so we have to use it. Or are you having a problem with your computer? Is there something I can help you with to help you get to where you can see your friends and your family, even though you can't be with them? Um, The other part is um, ministering and loving ourselves. While we have this moment in time, when so many of the distractions that we typically were involved with have been diminished. What is important to you now? 
because for the first two weeks, we cleaned out the garage. <laughs> we prepared those things that we had been walking by that we never had time to repair. We did all that thinking that, you know, in the third week it would be over. Well, that's not the case now. So now we can do some of that deeper work. Like, am I really at the job I want to be at? What is the calling on my heart? Now, maybe it's not to leave your job. Maybe it's what what have I been wasting in my spare time that I know I'm really supposed to be doing this other thing? Or that book that I have been promising to write, not read, but write. Mm -hmm. And can I do one thing every other day at 2 o'clock that's going to help me that by the time I have to go back to a regular something or other that's going to be different, by the way, I'll be so much further along down the road toward that book I've been promising I was going to write that I know I'm supposed to write. Mm-hmm. Or that project me and my sister have been talking about for 10 years, and it's time. Um, I think that this we have to reframe it as an opportunity. I'm feeling this from Ilyanza Van Zandt. And Oprah, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I'm not going to take credit for what I got elsewhere, but but this is an, it can be called an opportunity. And I'm not trying to diminish those people who are grieving the loss of somebody real from this epidemic. If you are there, then you have to care for yourself and your grief. And you have to find the people who are healthy enough to help you get through it. So I'm not denying that. Or if you don't know where the next meal is coming from, then that's real. Mm-hmm. And you got to find the people who you can love and trust to tell that to, and you got to work everything that's possible to get that meal back on the table. And I am so sorry about that. But for many of us for whom that is not the case, we can take advantage of a real opportunity to do something good for ourselves and for the part of the world that we have an influence on. Mm -hmm. Well, I want to thank you. If someone wants to learn more about abundant love, um, if they're looking for something, maybe they might even be from Atlanta and want to give back to their home, how do they find out about abundant love? Well, actually, because we worship on Zoom, um, it's Abundant Love spelled out the, the long way. Abundant L-E Love Unitarian Universalist has a web, has, I'm sorry, has a Facebook page. And we do have a website, uh, www.aluuv.org. Okay. So that's, again, www.aluuv.org is our website. It is way out of date. Forgive us. Please forgive us. (laughs) There's basic information there, and and it will also tell you how you can get in touch with us. And if you'd like to support us financially, we we are not going to turn that down. Uh, (laughs) If you want to give some stimulus to Abundant Love, we appreciate it. God bless you. Um, <laughs> um, and I am going to encourage people to look for 
look for ways that they can be helpful to somebody else. That makes you feel better. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Uh, because the anxiety and the fear are real in their energy, and you can shift the energy. <clears throat> well, again, I want to thank you for being with me this afternoon. Um, oh, Michelle, this has been a joy. Uh, you know, I knew I knew you were one. You know, I, I too am one of those ones. Everybody, you know, I talk to I talk to people, and I I connect with people. And I knew I knew you. <laughs> I knew you. You know, I knew you were you were my cousin from from the other aunt with the pink cobbler. You know, <laughs> oh, but I want you to stay well, stay safe, and. Okay, and um, and get, get five or six masks so you can match them to your outfit. Hey, you know I'm working on that. <laughs> <laughs> I want to thank my guest, Reverend Duncan Teague of Atlanta's Abundant Love Congregation. Reverend Teague is a 2015 inductee to the Morehouse College Board of Preachers of the Martin Luther King Jr. International College of Ministers and Laity. In 2018, his story was featured in the Atlanta Journal-Constitution and subsequent interviews of Atlanta area men leading the struggle of an HIV-AIDS epidemic among African-American, gay, bisexual, and transgender people from the 1980s to the present. Be sure and follow Collections by Michelle Brown Blog Radio on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And let us know if you have a suggestion for a guest or a topic for a future show. You can listen to this or past episodes of the show on Google Play Music, SoundCloud, iTunes, Stitcher, or Blog Talk Radio. Join us next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality, and creating change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown. Thank you for listening. Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details.